It's episode 99 of the Improv London podcast. I'm your host, Stuart Moses, and this week's guest is Arfie. Hello, Stuart. How are you? Hello, Arfie. I'm very well. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. <laughs> Asking the tough questions from yeah. the start. Uh, you're perhaps best known... <laughs> You're perhaps best known for Big Now. Big Now. Big Now. Stop it, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> so, Big Now, to explain to your listeners, uh, is a, a clown punk trio, if you will. Uh, we, we dick about in a very physical way, although we don't really do that anymore. Um, I, think, I think what you've seen was Big Now version 2... We're on to version three at the moment. All right. Uh, so I think it was version two that you hated. Um, just uh, for context, for those who haven't listened to every previous episode of this podcast, as, as I have, I, I definitely have. Uh, in a previous episode, whilst talking to Lizzie Mace, uh, one third of Big Now, unless we're doing it by mass, in which more like a quarter, I'm, I'm half. By, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Anyway. Um, Stuart mentioned that uh, he loathes Big Now and everything we stand for, which is fair. Uh, it's, it's not for everyone. Um, I, I believe you accused us of being art, and that's fair, because um, any in any improv show, you should be aiming for it to be funny, but if it isn't funny, at least it's art. So uh, we nailed that one. We nailed not being funny enough to be comedy. So that was, that was a lot of fun. Thanks for that, Stuart. Um, and yet, and yet, we're not great at taking compliments, so Brendan Way, the lovely Brendan Way, who doesn't deserve any of the shit that I've thrown at him, uh, he, he described us after one show a year ago as being at the top of our game. And we, of course, took offence. We just went, oh, so it's all downhill from here. Oh, uh, thanks for that, Brendan. Yeah, yeah, great review. We'll really be quoting that one. Uh, it was a lovely thing for a lovely man to have said, and uh, we just ripped into him mercilessly. I say we, mostly me. Uh, that's kind of my thing. Uh, it shouldn't be. Um, that's a horrible thing to have as a thing, but uh, that's, that's how I was. And uh, he takes it well, which uh, shouldn't be a reason to keep doing it, but it really is. And then you say some really nasty stuff about us, and we loved it. Like we've applied for festivals using that quotation. We just <laughs> love it so much. Is this art? Am I supposed to enjoy it or just sort of marvel at it? I mean, yes. The answer is yes. You're supposed to do that, one or the other, ideally both. But hey ho, um, you can't win them all, and we haven't won you yet. <laughs> can you, sorry, can you talk me through the different, because I'm really interested in, yes, yes, in the yes, incarnations. Yes. Well, so absolutely. starting with version one, version two, which, we'll maybe come to my reaction to that in a minute, <laughs> and then version three. I imagine we will, yes. <laughs> um, okay. So what was, the, what was the genesis of it, and let's track the evolution through the different versions. Okay, now obviously uh, these version numbers are very crass and really don't reflect the realities of the on-the-ground situation, but... Uh, Fundamentally, version one was where we were trying to do satire and failing badly. Right. Um, occasionally we would fail, fail well, but uh, mostly we failed badly. There was one show where the audience left. Not during our set, they left at the interval. And to be fair, it, 
the show wasn't going well at all. We weren't even the worst of it, uh, but we were. No, we were definitely the worst of it. Um, I, I won't name any names, but uh, there were other groups on who were just full of brilliant improvisers and bombed completely. So it wasn't just us. Why, um, why, why were they bombing? Just, it wasn't working. Something about the atmosphere in the room just didn't land. And it's a room that's normally great. I won't say which one. Um, gosh, I'm being so, so cautious. Um, it's not like a conversation with me at all, is it? Uh, <laughs> He's yeah. normally so indiscreet, listeners. Normally so indiscreet. I really am. <laughs> um, yeah. No, so it was... It was remarkable, but that was, that kind of emblemized, that's not a word, <laughs> let's say it is, that's emblemized our first era to a certain extent. So what was the attraction of doing satire? Well, no one else is doing it, and we're into satire, oh, right. and that's, that's broadly the scope of it, but also there's a lot to be done there, and yet it's a huge challenge to do it with improv, because... You know, you've got the, um, what is it, the, the inner game and the outer game or whatever, or the inner scene and the outer scene, that where you, you have the understanding of what's going on within the scene, you've got what the actors are doing, and you're constantly asking yourself, what does this actor want, or what does this character want, and to add a whole extra layer to that of satire, because satire is already working on multiple levels, so if you're playing a polar bear that's supposed to be Boris Johnson, you're on two levels there, as well as the additional layers of actor, improviser, and so on. So it's tricky, and it takes a lot of specialised work to get there, and no one was teaching it. Um, and the books don't tell us about it. We'd, so we formed after doing an intensive with uh, Messing and Mason, as one does. <laughs> and... We were so excited about the stuff that they taught us, but also stuff that they just touched on. And satire was one of those things. And when we formed the group, we went, what, what is it that really appeals to us? What is it that excites us? All of these things that we've done, that we've talked about, learned about, and so on, what is going to be our thing? Why are we doing this? Because hmm. there's no point just forming an improv group and just going, no, oh, let's just do some improv, unless you're just starting out, in which case that's the ideal reason to do it. <laughs> and so all of us were veterans of the scene. <laughs> uh, the others much more so than I. Uh, I'd only been improvising for about ooh, a year and a half at that stage, I think, um, and the others for uh, decades, <laughs> actual decades. I might be lying for comic effect, but I might actually be accurate there. Who knows? You'll never know. Um, Although so, I warned you before the podcast not to start naming members of the team if you can't remember all the members of the team, but in this case, it was... So, um, it, it was me, Lizzie Mace, Sophie Pumphrey, and Susan Cunningham initially. Um, she left after about, I think, six months, and then we we solidified into what we have now. So I think we pretty much launched into version 2 uh, shortly after that where it was a lot more I think visceral Okay, we'll come to... A lot we'll more in your face Yes. Uh, we'll certainly come to, your face. It's certainly my face um, It's just 
before we yeah, because I want to talk about that. But um, mm. so with version one, what was the form that you were doing when you were doing satire? Was it was it newspaper headlines stuck on a board, or am I getting you confused with somebody else? Yeah, you're getting us confused with someone else. Okay. Um, that sounds like musical to me. No, it was pre-musical, but okay. okay. Um, never mind. <laughs> what we did was we asked the audience for something that was very big <laughs> and very now. Uh, and for our first show, which was at a Hoopla launch pad, uh, it, it was the shard. Because that's... I mean, uh, listeners at home won't necessarily be aware of this, but we are very much in the shadow of the shard right here. We're, we're both currently staring at the shard, yeah. and it is ominous. <laughs> it is both big and now. Yes. So, we then asked the audience, okay... What does that make you think? What does that instill in you? Because even at that stage, we were wanky. <laughs> and people said, oh, it looks unfinished, because at that stage it had only recently been finished, and <laughs> people hadn't realised, because there's that bit at the top where it looks uh, apparently unfinished. Hmm. You remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can still see. <laughs> and so we did a set based off that, and I... I don't know if we'd found our transitions at that stage, but we we went for an approach to transitions which was based on the warm-up Chicken Monster. Mm. Which we should explain for those that haven't played Chicken Monster. And yet we won't. <laughs> so Chicken Monster is one of the many names of that one warm-up where someone does a gesture and makes a sound and then the next person repeats it as exactly as possible. And this is one of those ones where it's a real test of whether you're paying attention because you can really see who hasn't <laughs> been copying the previous person exactly. So I was coaching a team once who... We did this as a warm-up because it's, it's great fun. And one of them wasn't able to move fully, so there was a bit where people were spinning round hugely and it got to her and she couldn't. And then people after her spun round hugely. And that was clear that they weren't repeating exactly what they'd seen because they were going to what they expected, which loses a lot of the joy of the piece. The joy is from going into whatever stupid thing happens. And a lot of the time that'll be someone will giggle just before their turn because the previous thing has been so absurd. <laughs> and some of it will be that uh, someone sneezes in the middle or whatever. Any little incidental thing is part of the piece. And we had the most fun with that and went, why are our shows not as fun as our warm-ups? And this, you'll find, is a recurring feature. We went, why, why aren't we able to tap into what's fun in our shows? And we went, well... Chicken Monsters, what's fun? So we did that as a show, basically. Um, Is this version two? It's 1.7. <laughs> so the transitions between scenes are we'll take uh, physicality from within a scene, and then the next person will repeat that, and then we'll chicken monster it into something else, and then we would pluck one of those end results and use that as an initiation. And... So that was how we 
got towards a more physical performance style. And we built on that as well with throwing in other stuff. You mentioned at the beginning Big Now. Uh, there's <laughs> Big Now. Big Now. Big so now. this is a running quote-unquote joke that we did in two, maybe three of our shows, but they they became quote-unquote legendary. It really caught on. It Even really amongst caught people on. have never seen Big Now. Especially amongst people who've never seen Big Now. Uh, for many people, that is the full Big Now experience, and I'm delighted. So what we did was... Uh, there was the Night Tube show at Hoopla, which was a sequence of small bit shows after the main Saturday or Friday night show early in 2017, I think it was. Or maybe it wasn't. Who knows? Okay. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a time in the past. <laughs> and we did a five-minute set at that, and we decided to do a trailer for Big Now. Now, I say we decided, as with so many ideas that you'll hear that sound absolutely ridiculous, I suggested it, and the others are really good at yes-anding, no matter how bad the idea is. And from what I'm going to tell you, you will only hear the good ideas because the rest have been forgotten about. So let's let's not pretend that I'm some kind of Ken Campbell-style genius who just came up effortlessly with wonderful ideas left, right and centre. No, I've, I've come up with plenty of bad ones, but they died and we're not going to hear about them now, unless they're fun. Who knows? And so we did a trailer. So what we would do was say "big now" a lot because that's how that's how trailers go, isn't it? You big know, now. Uh, you you've seen the trailer for Alien, where it's just a bunch of people saying "Alien, Alien, <laughs> Alien." I don't know. I don't think I've seen that trailer in a while. Uh, not a patch on the Prometheus trailer because uh, it takes people longer to say, say Prometheus, Prometheus than to say Alien. Prometheus. That was a great trailer. I, I mean, there are so many bad trailers in this day and age, and then you get incredible ones like that where you go, my God, the trailer to Prometheus is a far better film than Prometheus. <laughs> I could go on. My main issue with Prometheus uh, is it's a minor thing. It really is a minor thing. It's at the end where, spoilers, the spaceship is falling and about to crush... Um, Numi Rapace and uh, Charlie's Theron? Yeah? Sure, I'm, why not? I'm, I'm yes ending that. Yeah, oh, you haven't seen it? I have seen it, I just oh, I can't remember. Fair enough. Um, one of them stumbles, falls to the side, and the other one keeps running in a straight line. <laughs> and the, the ship crushes the one who was running in a straight line. And the interesting thing is, the ship was rolling in a straight line. And what's particularly galling about this is they shot it in 3D, and yet the makers <laughs> clearly had no understanding of two dimensions. Uh, I didn't care for Alien Covenant either. Um, I mean, all, all of these all of these uh, bloody recent ones. I, not a fan. Not a fan at all. I mean, I, I loved Alien. It's, a, it's an amazing film. Big Now. Uh, big Now, yeah. Um, and I... Yeah... So fundamentally, at heart, you were doing a trailer. We were doing a trailer. We were saying and big now a lot in the trailer. We were saying big now a lot, and I mean, 
I think I'm one of the few, but I love Alien 3. I think it's a really fascinating film. I, it would be much better if they'd gone along with the original idea, which would, was would, a monastery yeah, yeah. in space. And oh. But what might have been? <laughs> it's not like improv where you get to do it again in a different way. <laughs> so, big now. Big now. Big now. And we, as well as just saying big now constantly, which became, I don't know, a meme, uh, <laughs> we also did slogans. So it was big now, doing something, 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 something. I don't know, I'm out of practice. Um, you know, big now, knowing you're big since 1974. That's, uh, I, I was about to say... They were a lot better than that, but I have no guarantee they were. <laughs> I think two-thirds of them were better than that, but mine weren't. And in amongst all this, we threw in examples of the kind of scenes that people could see us do. <laughs> so, really weird, stilted stuff, which wasn't the kind of scenes that we were actually doing. But do you know what? Stuart knows what. We later went on to do exactly those kinds of scenes, so it was very prescient in, in ways that we, we couldn't really have expected, you know? But that was a lot of fun, and we, we borrowed bits of that for our main show, and we threw in gr a greater physicality to what we were doing than just the uh, chicken monster transitions. Uh, my... My principle behind an improv show, if, you, if you'd like to hear... I would love to hear. ...is that the entire show is the entire show. And I think we can all understand what I mean by that. <laughs> but I will explain, because I'm quite certain we don't. <laughs> the audience sees everything. Even when they don't know, they see everything, they see everything. So, if an edit is a sweep, they see that. And certainly the first time they see that, they go, what the fuck was that? <laughs> Who was that person? Why did they walk across the front? I don't understand. And we forget that, because we end up going for the same grammar of shows time and time again. And the second, third, fourth time you see an improv show, you get it, and thereafter, you get it. But up to that point, you don't get it, and you shouldn't be expected to. <laughs> and so... I can't even remember who taught me this, uh, which is a real shame because I, I want to uh, show all my working and references. You get more points for it, but you know. Yeah, well, you just, to it. If you just have the correct answer, that's also fine. Not in maths. <laughs> this isn't maths. No, no. Improv it might be maths, and actually, that's something I do want to ask. Okay, about. that'll be interesting when we get to that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Where were we? We were talking about big now. Oh, big now, yes. <laughs> and so, the idea there is that the audience sees everything the audience sees everything so the space between scenes is as important as the scenes themselves sometimes more so so for a couple of shows we ended up with the space between the scenes taking up as much time as the scenes themselves but they should certainly take the same importance the whole show is the whole show uh, the get is part of the show the getting onto the stage is part of the show the failing to get onto the stage is often part of the show <laughs> and we wanted to play with that, this notion that the whole show is the whole show. I say we. I definitely wanted to play with it, and the others were gracious enough to go along <laughs> with it. Uh, you know, we do disagree about things, uh, but, you know, 
we still try. And some of the things fail. And different people have different opinions about which things those were, <laughs> Stuart. <clears throat> so, we ended up with a situation where we had these bits between scenes which were more than just transitions, they were physical, not scenes, but skits, I suppose. You know, pissing about sessions. And lest anyone think that this is self-indulgent, all improv is self-indulgent at heart. But some improv is more self-indulgent than others. <laughs> Undeniably. <laughs> but at, at no point were we ever going, fuck the audience, we're going to do what we want. We were always taking into account, and still do, the audience experience. We want the audience to have a good experience. You see, this is what I'm interested in. Do yeah. you? Yeah, absolutely. And what do you mean by a good experience? Do you want them to enjoy it? And is it possible to enjoy it and have a good experience by <laughs> the same thing? Okay. The audience doesn't have to have fun. And that is difficult at a comedy night. But then not all improv nights are comedy nights. <laughs> so uh, a night at Hoopla, for instance, is going to be a lot more geared to the comedy. And a night at the nursery could be geared either way. Um, I mean, it's not a hard and fast rule. You get very theatrical things on at Hoopla, and you get uh, very silly things on at the nursery. Yeah, but it's a general um, rule, yeah. yeah. And other excellent venues are available. <laughs> so the audience matters. Uh, but they don't necessarily need to have fun. They don't necessarily need to have fun, no. So some of my favourite films, I've got to the end of it and gone, hmm, that's a brilliant film. I loved it. I definitely didn't have fun. Right. Like you don't get to the end of a Beltar film and go, that's that's seven hours of <laughs> Hungarian suffering. <laughs> what a lot of fun. <laughs> but you do, and I say you, but I do mean I, you do go, that was brilliant. I wish I ever had the time to watch that again. <laughs> so there's, there's more to life than just having fun. But if the audience is expecting to have fun, you do need to recognise that. So that's why sometimes you'll go in an anti-fun direction, because you're acknowledging their wish to have fun and going, we know what you want, and we're deliberately subverting that. Some people hate that, and that's a shame. <laughs> and this is the thing. You can't please all the people all the time. And some groups are going to be more divisive than others. And I don't have any regrets about my groups <laughs> falling into that. Uh, not all of them, but eh, a lot of them. <laughs> so, we want the audience to come away having had an experience that they will keep with them for a while. Yes. And it's hard to deny that we do that. Well, that's, I wouldn't deny that for one moment. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes that works out as an unfortunate thing because they might want to lose that experience, but that's that's your call, Stuart. And it it is unfortunate when people leave having had a bad time. And no one wants that. Um, well, maybe some people do, and I don't like those people. But we want the audience to have had a good experience. It doesn't mean necessarily having fun. It could be that their lives have changed forever. Or it could be 
that they just end up saying big now for weeks afterwards <laughs> and don't quite know why. <laughs> and sometimes people are just delighted and amazed but aren't necessarily having fun. <laughs> but we're, we're trying. And if you're not going to do something different, why are you doing at all? And there are times when you see groups going through the motions and you think, are you even having fun? Why are you doing this? I want you to have fun, and maybe your fun might not be on stage. <laughs> but also, I do think there needs to be an understanding of why you are on stage, why you think what you are doing is worth other people's time. And this is something that irks me about watching some other groups, solely because I see myself there. And I, I see all the mistakes of previous things I've done, and go, why aren't you considering the audience? And so I, I'm fully aware that my irritation with other people, as is so often the case, comes from irritation at myself. It's completely legit. But it still makes me very uncomfortable when you see a group who are just pissing about, and you go, who's this for? And I can see why you'd think that Big Now falls into that category. Um, but it's always for the audience. It's partly for us, of course, but it's always for the audience. And if we don't try to do something great, then we're going to do something mediocre. If we do try and we fail, we tried. <laughs> so that's, that's Big Now. I've um, always yes. I uh, know you were talking. You, you, no, you, I was no. just going to say I've always found big and out interesting. <laughs> Faint praise. I, I haven't always had fun, mm. but that's why I wanted to talk to you because I <laughs> wanted to know. Because if you were seeking to give, always give the audience fun, which I didn't think you were, <laughs> it's but, very plain that we aren't. But, but, if, but if you were, then I would say that you had failed. Yes, <laughs> and that's fair to say. And <laughs> certainly at the beginning. We did try and we did fail on that front. <laughs> now, to be fair, we have given the audience a lot of fun since. And um, so we recently had a lot of shows where we've been in this kind of transitional phase where a lot of the time only two of us have been available. So we've done these weirder shows. <laughs> <laughs> well. Oh, that's... Uh, oh, just realised what I said there. But yeah, no, they have been weirder. So... One that particularly sticks in my mind was, it was Lizzie and me, we were at Duck Duck Goose, and we decided beforehand, so we went into it with a manifesto, oh, and Big Now of course have a manifesto, uh, but we had a special manifesto for one night only, which we've tried to repeat every time since, which was, in future years, people will look back on this night as the birth of the new improv. Let us destroy improv as it is at the moment and have it reborn. <laughs> Which is always going to fail. In the same way that Coca-Cola's mission statement of we want more people to drink Coke than water will always fail, but they're fucking aiming high. And, <laughs> you know, if anyone could manage it, they could. So fair play to those wonderful corporate people. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so what we did ended up having no scenes in it. 
we were on stage for about 15 minutes and not a single scene happened and it was compelling and beautiful I can say that because it was and how, do, how, how, how come you didn't have any scenes? I don't understand what, what do you mean you do? how come? do you mean what did we do or do you mean why? do you want both? Um, yeah, both are on offer, I would like both sure why was we didn't have to Right. and we wanted to explore other things so was it just you two chatting? No. <laughs> no, barely that at all. As part of it, I decided to be a bit of an imp of the perverse. You know, like Loki or Bugs Bunny, who are basically the same person. Anyway, in the middle of a scene where we were... I say scene, it wasn't scene so much. Uh, in the middle of a conversation, Lizzie said something very deep, meaningful and beautiful. And I, still in character, in a very sincere way, said, new choice. <laughs> and Lizzie said, something else beautiful, profound, lovely, and completely different. You know, the way that new choice your should choice be played works. and yes. is never played. <laughs> and so I said that a few times, and then we carried on with the conversation. Until, eventually, I said something, and of course... Lizzie responded with, new, new choice. choice. And I said, what the thunder said. Now, for the listeners at home, there was an improv group called Two of Wands, which was Lizzie Mace, with whom I was doing that show, and Michael Such, with whom I was not. This particular phrase is taken from The Wasteland, you know, a bit of T.S. Eliot, because... I'm not the most pretentious person in improv, <laughs> and um, that's really disappointing to me. Uh, yeah, that's a, a real failure on my part. But anyway, uh, it's uh, this then transforms what they do into a <laughs> like beat poem improvised while the other one does an interpretive dance. So as soon as I said that... Lizzie went with it and started doing this poem, and I realised, oh, crikey, I've set myself up to do an interpretive dance. So that's the kind of thing we did. Uh, we were mostly talking to the audience as twin narrators, uh, but not narrating anything in particular. Uh, it was stuff like, the day has come to an end, and we each had our own position on the day and but it was definitely talking to the audience but then we would find disagreements amongst ourselves and we would turn to each other and discuss but you'd be hard pressed to call it a scene so that's what we did and that was really exciting but recently we've we've discovered this new form called the monoscone um the monoscone is uh i don't know how to uh, describe it. it. It contains only one edit which happens at the end which ends the scene um, and up until that it's a single a single scene right. so um, I don't understand the derivation of the name but it's it's an interesting one and we've we've been trying that out and loving it and it turns out that we can still be very definitely big now without all the physical pissing about between scenes. Which I always felt was more fun for you than the audience. No, I never enjoyed it. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) 
So, uh, what is Big Now's manifesto? You mentioned they had one. Uh, it's a Manal festo. Oh, right. Manal uh, <laughs> festo. It's, it's long and I haven't read it in a while and we, we've been talking about redrafting it. Oh, so right. We do still want to do satire and maybe this is the ideal opportunity for us to talk about Heads Might Roll. Yes, that would be a seamless link. Yes. Let's no one draw attention to the link nature of that transition. <laughs> yes, so what Big Now would do at this point would we would do it some kind of dance which starts with the notion of satire and ends with Heads Might Roll. So Heads Might Roll is a nursery original, which is to say a show at the nursery theatre which they give time and resources to develop and then gives a run of. And I I directed that show. Uh, I'll fess up to that one. <laughs> and the idea is it's an independent inquiry. And we look at something that's wrong with the world or the country and then explore it through the medium of scenes or diatribes or interviews or political cartoons. So it's... I described it as a happy, carefree romp through everything that's wrong with the world. <laughs> and it's, it's one of those ones where I realised once I'd put in the application that I'd just thrown my personality at the page and let it stick. <laughs> and, I mean, those are the kind of shows that I'm most interested in. So you look at uh, the other... No, sorry, original. So, United, which is Joel being enthusiastic and supportive. I mean, that's that's him <laughs> as a performance. And so I was really excited by the idea of that. I thought, yes, I want to be involved in that because I want to be in a show which is just Joel. I, I want to be wrapped in that. Um, it's just like being hugged for an entire show. It's, it's so lovely. And then you've got James Lalasha, who is directing next season's The Fauna of Penny Forest, uh, which, for copyright reasons, I won't name what it's based on, but you can work it out. <laughs> and it's all about woodland animals, and James is an expert on animals and loves them. So it's, it's their personality writ large. And so I, I love the way that the originals allow people to do that to take on a show that is them and it doesn't need to be a compromise in the same way that a team does obviously there's going to be negotiation and you work out what works and you do take input from the team but at the end of the day what you say goes <laughs> and yet that's not really true because at the end of the day what the cast do on stage goes and the director tends not to be there and so they get to do whatever they like. Um, so you say you were the director. So how does one direct an improv show? You practice improvising. You you make things up and then you see what works and then you make things up again. And you keep doing it over and over until you're sick of it. Or brilliant and famous. <laughs> but, but you were giving them parameters. You were steering them I was giving them, them parameters. And it started off as a very, very tightly regimented show that um, it was essentially 
here is the inquiry. They sit at the side of the stage throughout and they will pass across to um, rants or scenes. And that was pretty much it. And it didn't really seem to land. Uh, it didn't feel like its own thing. The scenes didn't really pop and the the format didn't make any kind of sense. But then the cast suggested various uh, additions, so having interviews with people, so to be able to inquire of people. Mm. And that actually became the main part of the show. And that's a little bit of a problem because the cast is ten people. And you've got three people on stage at all time and then you've got seven people to do all the other stuff. And when you're rattling through things at a hell of a rate between scenes and all that kind of thing, it's fine. But when you've got a single character sitting there talking for five minutes, other people don't get much stage time. And so I I regret that. Uh, I, I came up with a format that didn't work and together we came up with one based on that that did but we still had the cast of a size that worked for the yeah. previous format yeah. so there'll be shows where people barely get out on stage and it's a real shame because I love all of those performers they're, they're really good, I wouldn't have cast them otherwise, uh, I was really disappointed that I couldn't cast quite as many people as I wanted but then wonderfully two people I offered things to had to drop out before we began and I was able to offer it to everyone then as a result so that was wonderful but it ended up being too many it's 10 people that's too many for a 45 minute show unless it's a very specific kind of show so I've made mistakes there learnt from them but what worked is the satire mm. and part of that was we spent the beginning of each rehearsal mired in current affairs. Really? That we had up to an hour's discussion sometimes of everything that was going on in the news. Yeah. Mostly with the UK focus, but sometimes with the wider current affairs focus. And initially we were looking at a news story as the get, but then we asked for a current affairs thing. So we've done uh, the housing crisis, the weather, uh, <laughs> the economy, all, all this kind of thing. And every time I do a joke about... So I, I go on stage at the beginning as uh, as the government and saying, well, uh, your beloved government, in our infinite wisdom, have decided that we're going to have an inquiry to shut you up. And it's something that we've cared about a great deal for a long time. Let's just see what your suggestions are. Um and we won't written suggestions. Written suggestions because um, it's it's awkward for the audience to shout things out because some people want you, you know all the reasons for it, but it's it's much easier to do things from written suggestions. Then you don't have to have that negotiation there. People still get to submit things. Yeah. And so usually I'll go through a few because then people get to see that they've they've been listened to. Um, but also I will overrule them so they get to feel that they are not listened to. <laughs> to really get the full feeling of modern democracy. <laughs> and every time I'll say, and we're not doing Brexit because that's going brilliant. <laughs> and... Yeah, then then I pass over to the panel and they do the show and I stand at the back and go, 
Oh, I wish I were doing that. <laughs> it's that's some fun, isn't it? But by being mired in all the current affairs stuff, we've been a lot more geared towards the satire of it, a lot more on it with the themes and being able to play characters who are both a character but also representing something else. Mm. It does help that we have the panel at the side saying, ah, that's clearly Theresa May. <laughs> In the beginning we lent a bit too heavily on that and every single scene was, that's Theresa May. <laughs> and then the people in the scene are going, um, <laughs> how do we make this work? So it's a learning process, but it, it's difficult to do satire, even having worked on it for five weeks we haven't found a magic bullet, you just need to keep working on it and be in that milieu so there's no clear answers there uh, it's almost like an inquiry in that sense, <laughs> that we set out for answers and in the end we end up with compromise and let down <laughs> uh, but you also had props yes Tell me about the props in Heads Might Roll. Uh, briefcases, uh, because of course you need a briefcase. Uh, a timer to tell people when to shut up. <laughs> a tambourine, that was just for a laugh. <laughs> Wigs, uh, just for at the end when they give their judgement, they stick barristers' wigs on. We did look into them wearing them throughout, but they're very uncomfortable. <laughs> you can just about cope with two or three minutes. They're, you know cheap synthetic ones. I did look into getting proper barristers wigs but they start at about five grand. Wow. Yeah um, and the the budget was generous but nowhere near that generous. So <laughs> Sorry Jules I've spent it all on a wig <laughs> and you owe the makers. Eh, you know these things happen but that was that was a loss. Oh also we have a gavel Obviously, we have a gavel, so you go, and uh, next thing. It's a lot of fun to gavel. Everyone loves to gavel. Also, we have uh, a curtain over the table they're sitting at so that the gavel isn't too loud. Because ah. the thing about gavels is... It's surprisingly loud. Yep. Yeah, very loud. So that's been a lot of fun, and we're looking at continuing the run of that beyond the nursery's initial run. So they've given us our five shows I think um, and then we've got uh, at least one coming up after that run so uh, hopefully we'll be able to do more with it I'm interested with, in the idea of taking it into a wider format that we could try getting expert guests and actually run an inquiry of sorts with real people who know things Wow! and then uh, shop it around as a televisual format and make my first million Sounds marvellous. <laughs> Doesn't it, though? <laughs> uh, let's, uh, let's talk about somewhat theatre. Why? Let's talk about... <laughs> because that's the nature of the podcast. Oh, you yeah. do something, I ask you about no, it, and then you talk about it. <laughs> so somewhat theatre formed after doing a few intensives with Dave Rosowski, and I'd been in a previous group which was... Rosalskian in its mode, which was Misunderstood Commander, which was uh, me and Prabs. And when he abandoned me and moved away to 
Berlin. Hello, Prabs. <sighs> nope. Not going to do it. It's not going to say hello. Too it's, soon. It's still too raw. soon. Still, still raw. raw. Uh, I, I felt abandoned, dejected, and I needed my fix of that kind of thing. And also, I genuinely think that the stuff Prabs and I did even though it was like 18 months ago, two years ago, and so on, still ranks as amongst the best improv I've ever done. Um, and I can't speak for Prabs because he might have gone on to do much better stuff since, <laughs> but um, it was amongst my favourite stuff I'd seen of his, and that's, that's no low bar. Hmm. So it was wonderful. We, it was just the two of us on stage responding to each other and fucking with each other, but in a very nuanced and analytic way. And so it would start off with five minutes of no jokes whatsoever, nothing funny, and then people would be in stitches by the end, because uh, that's the way that approach tends to end up. <laughs> and it was lovely, it was really theatrical, um, it was... I, yeah, I, I, I feel sad that we're not currently doing it. It's so good um, I mean perhaps is amazing so it was always going to be but uh, we we landed on that almost by accident because we'd been talking about doing a 2 prov for ages and hadn't landed on the approach to take and then we did stuff with Rosowski and uh, perhaps said we should we should do that uh, because, as I said, he's a brilliant man. <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was wonderful. And so, somewhat theatre was... The idea there uh, is to do theatrical stuff like that. We, we don't want to just ape the Rosowskian approach. And recently we've tried experimenting with a lot of different approaches. Uh, not all of which work but some of which really have done. So there was a <laughs> really fun show where there were five of us out of a total of eight on the team at the moment, and we were playing at Hoopla, and we thought, well, Hoopla, midweek, it's going to be half improv nerds and uh, half real people, and everyone's going to want fun, <laughs> so we'll do something that will work for both those halves on different levels. So we said, okay, uh, we are all going to do an, an improv form. So there are various types of improv, there are different forms, and we've all decided on a form to do, and we haven't told each other. <laughs> and so we ended up doing that. And so we had... Uh, a monoscene, a bat, a musical, and theatre sports all going on at once. Now, two of us had decided on a monoscene. We don't know what we're doing yet, but that's the joy of improv. If you know what you're doing, you're doing it wrong. That's not true, but uh, <laughs> it felt profound for the first half of saying it. And, you know, the, there's fun to be had with playing theatrical and pretentious um, there's an excellent group, uh, a trio that you might be familiar with who do that kind of thing. They're, they're called The Dreaming. 
Yeah. Uh, you thought I was going to say big now, but uh, <laughs> I, I actually said the dreaming yeah. uh, because I I want to give a shout out to them because they're excellent, and really? they they really play into the pretension and theatre of improv, and it's lovely. Have you seen them? No, I don't think I have. You should. I will look out for them. Do. And so, for a long time, somewhat, we're doing adaptations of existing stories, and that's been a lot of fun. We did Jurassic Park, <laughs> and that was from the perspective of the dinosaurs, <laughs> of course. We did Where's Spot, which was an existential journey. It uh, drew a lot from Kafka and Beckett, of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, and it was it was a lot of fun because none of us could remember the story and we don't think there is one. <laughs> so it's been interesting trying to find the balance between how much of the original do we throw in and how much do we just go, cool, we're going this direction now from the starting point, let's go there. So that's, that's quite experimental and... <laughs> Here's a funny thing. When you were talking to Lizzie way back when, and you were talking about Two of Wands, what I consider to be a very experimental improv project, then Somewhat Theatre, which is deliberately a very experimental improv project, and then you talked about Big Now, which was supposed to be fun. <laughs> and that's the one that you found difficult and experimental. And... I won't I won't pretend I didn't feel a bit of pride at that. <laughs> it was never meant to be that way, but uh, you know, we're difficult people. I'm difficult people especially. And you wouldn't have it any other way cuz otherwise you'd end up with a really tedious show like uh Doctor Suprov or something. Ooh. That's not fair. I love Bryn. He's he's marvellous. Have you had Bryn on and Bryn you just nerds it out the whole time? Yeah, episode 50. Yes, I've listened to all of them. I said that earlier. Yeah, yeah. Um, Bryn is very good. Hello, Bryn. He is very good. You know when you're watching a team and you go, there's one person on that team who's really holding the team up, um, as in lifting it up. And then there are other times you watch a team and you go, oh, there's one person really holding the team up, like really... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about, uh, more generally, uh, improv. Is improv maths to you? Is improv a problem that needs to be solved when you're on stage? No. So, okay, the reason I asked that is because I've been in a workshop with you and you were saying that you never imagine, I might be misquoting you, never actually imagine yourself in the scene. Ah, uh, right. You're talking about my aphantasia. So, I am not capable of mental images. When I close my eyes, there is just darkness. And not in a metaphorical way, I can't see things that aren't there. I didn't even know it was a thing until a few years back when, um, with a little bit of help, I saw some lovely mental images for an evening and then realised, oh, this is a thing that people can do without a bit of chemical help. <laughs> And so I thought, oh, something, something's different about me. And before that point, I thought I was the same as everyone else and not in any way special and, you know, very ordinary. 
And then I realised that I was not, and that there was this unusual thing. And speaking to other people about it, it turns out it's it's very unusual. Apparently, one in fifty people have it, um, and uh, it's very difficult for improv because in a lot of classes, particularly early classes before you get into the you know specific techniques mm. and so on people will say okay so uh, imagine a door and I'll go okay I'm imagining a I'm imagining a door and they'll say okay open that door what's through it and I'll go I don't know <laughs> and they'll say yeah but what do you see nothing there's there's nothing there and a lot of the time people will think I'm being obtuse because A, they've met me, <laughs> and B, it's apparently quite a difficult thing for people to wrap their head around that there are some people who don't see things when they close their eyes. And that's weird to me, because surely just imagine nothing, and that's, that's what I see. <laughs> um, I don't think in words either, and that's apparently even harder for people to get their heads around, because they go, what do you think in? Well, what do you think? <laughs> I think in thoughts, and that to me was a fairly straightforward idea until I discovered that everyone else has these other things going on. What it's like is a computer. A computer will think in machine code and will translate it via the medium of a monitor or speakers into sound, into words, into pictures. And I don't have that. Actually, I do think in sound sometimes. Um, it doesn't happen naturally, but I can do it. But that's the only one I can do. And I can think about words, but I don't have anything like an internal monologue or dialogue or anything like that. I can think about words. But, because I'm not thinking in words, when I, uh, when I speak, I have an automatic process to convert what I'm thinking into words. So I don't need to think about it, it's just happening. But then when someone says, I don't understand, could you reword that or reframe it or explain that in some other way, I really break down because then I have to go, okay, I can't use this automatic process. I now have to sift through words, which I'm not used to doing, and then find different ones, whereas I thought that was perfectly straightforward. And, you know, I have... I have problems with empathy that you might have noticed. Um, I I struggle with actually trying to get myself understood at times, and it frustrates me when people do, just don't get it. Um, so it's quite tricky sometimes to do improv mm. <laughs> because uh, other people are seeing wonderful things, and I've got none of it. Uh, it's it. So I'm not, I'm not great at uh, space work or defining a scene, because if someone says over here in this corner of the stage there's a table, and they'll say that by using the table somehow, and I'll go great, there's a table there, but I won't see it. I'll just have to remember there's a table there, and I have quite a good spatial understanding. I can, you know, usually find my way around a place quite well when I move somewhere by getting lost in the area deliberately and then I've found a lot of back streets and I'll go, cool, now I know a lot of vectors around here and I can add them together and work out where I am. Um, 
and you know, I I cycle a lot, so I I have a good kind of geographic understanding because you have to, because you're constantly going around on routes and you can't rely on tube maps and such. Mm-hmm. So I know where things are, but I can't see them, and so I can't do the whole thing of going. Okay, I have a table in front of me, and on it there is a telephone, and next to the telephone there is a mug, and the mug says, (laughs) world's best mug, (laughs) and in that mug there are pens. I don't know. (laughs) Well, you say you can't do it, but you did just do it. That was very artificial, just none of that came automatically right, okay. and you will notice that we are in an office where there is a table there's <laughs> mugs full of pens now I might not have been looking at them at the exact point <laughs> I said it but they were there oh. there is admittedly no landline because uh, we are currently sitting in the 21st century <laughs> so I don't have that I have difficulties communicating with people anyway like I can't really read emotions on people's face. Uh, when it's big, I suppose I can, but there's a lot of nuance there that I just don't get. And that's really difficult. It's really... Like, for improv, that's that's yeah. so hard. Uh, and coupled with the not seeing things, that's... It's not great. And so... You've seen me do my solo piece, yes. right? Yes. Um, so to explain to the audience at home, that is a piece where I play someone talking to an audience of sorts. So it's not not the same each time, of course. It's improv. But so sometimes I'll be a preacher talking to a congregation, or I'll be a um, person at a conference talking to a crowd at a conference, uh, or a politician talking to a campaign crowd always someone talking to a crowd because then there isn't that weird disconnect which I didn't realise wasn't a problem for other people of one solo performer talking to an empty space and then either responding to what that empty space has said or turning into the other person both of those are really awkward to my mind. I don't like the look of them, I don't like the feel of them. And yet, I've seen wonderful shows that do them, it's just for me I have difficulty wrapping my head around it. And so I I did something that not even thinking about the reasons behind it, but something that worked for my mind, of course, because <laughs> I'm not going to do something that didn't work for my mind. <laughs> and for for ages I'd been waxing lyrical about the one other person on the scene who does something similar and by similar I mean completely different but something that achieves a similar thing Uh, Nick Oram's Plainville Players where he has the players in front of him and he will move them about so there's an object permanence there a literal object permanence (laughs) and there's a continuity to uh, what's going on and a persistence it's the persistence that's important because uh, when you're playing one side there isn't a persistence to what the other side is doing the other person could be anywhere as far as you know but when they're made of Playmobil and (laughs) you can see them it's very clear and um, 
I was talking to Nick a while back. Turns out he has the the same same thing. He he can't see mental images, and that fascinated me. And also, it was a huge relief because I felt that it's been holding me back, and to a degree it has been. But if Nick Oram, who is one of the best improvisers that I've ever met, yeah. has the same thing, then the sky's the limit. So that was that was a wonderful feeling, and we've we've talked about that uh, in the past, and it's it's fascinating to like share our approaches and to to go i'm i'm not alone i didn't think i was but it's nice to be certain about it and to to go okay um i i can see where i can go from here because there's someone there yeah and it's not lonely and that's great because uh loneliness is horrible <laughs> yes um and that's that's why I do improv because if I don't, then it's just a howling void. Um, so you know, people say, "Oh, uh, how do you cope doing improv four or five nights a week?" It's like, no, no, this is this is my coping strategy. Um, if I didn't, I would be alone and terrified. So you know, yeah, I'm you know, I'm... sorry, we're talking a lot about mental illness today, aren't we? Uh, fascinating because I didn't know this about you. Well, I, hmm, I was about to say I don't talk about it much, but I do. It's just amongst improvisers we end up talking about improv, that is true. and so a lot of people I consider very close friends, I don't know anything about them hmm. because we'll we'll meet at shows after workshops, and most of what we talk about will be improv, and sometimes what we talk about will be improvising. We'll just be improvising amongst ourselves and doing bits. That's wonderful. So I know these people because I feel who they are and how they react and I've I've been so many different people with them and they've been so many different people with me and I've felt who they are underneath but I don't know about their history or anything and yeah, I, I'm completely fine talking about all my mental illness and so on but it just doesn't come up at shows like we we haven't had that relationship here before um so like so i got into improv uh through <laughs> uh, a manic episode um i i was at uh grand theft impro and um was in the middle of a week-long manic episode the only one i've had and hopefully the last one i'll ever have touch wood uh, but I had no sense of a filter, so I, I couldn't really say no to things, which um, is great for um, <laughs> like making life changes, but it's quite dangerous for making life changes. Um, also for cycling through traffic, <laughs> you really want to have a filter, you really want to be able to say no. Uh, like Will Hines has this great metaphor of no in improv is like the brakes. You can't be doing no all the time, but you need to do no sometimes, because <laughs> otherwise you're going to crash and die. Um, and that's lovely. Uh, that's a lovely metaphor, but also, in a literal sense, I didn't really have that going on. And so I was in a dangerous place, and went to GTI, as I said, and um, I was talking with uh, Charlotte Gittins, uh, amongst others, and she was saying, you should do an improv class. And I, <laughs> I said yes, and because uh, 
Yeah, that's that's what you do when you don't have a filter. <laughs> I, I so I, I didn't realize that I was in the perfect state to improvise. Thankfully, it came to an end. But um, you know, that's when I did my first and last stand-up set as well. I wrote three thousand words in two hours. Wow! And then wept. <laughs> <laughs> And then got on the DLR and phoned my parents because that's what you do in a situation like that. And then wept again in front of a carriage full of strangers. Um, very liberating. Uh, but that's why I do improv because uh, it's uh, it quiets all that down and um, keeps me wanting to be alive. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for sharing that. I feel no, like it's okay. I feel I I understand you. A lot more than I did. I doubt that. Well, I mean, there's still much, <laughs> still much to learn. I imagine. I mean, I, I knew all that already, and I don't understand myself. So, <laughs> hey ho. Um, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. I'm good. Yeah. How's uh, how's the howling void for you? Um, eternal. But we find our ways to fill it. We do. We do exactly, and that's quite nice. And some of those things are positive <laughs> yes. and um, others of those things are destructive and thankfully improv is for the most part a positive one when it becomes a kind of addiction it can be a problem uh, and then you end up spending all your time doing it and you're not sleeping enough and you get to the weekend and you go ah but I don't have any time to rest because I'm doing a two day intensive with some brilliant person come over from Chicago or New York or wherever and then Sunday evening comes about and you go well I'll do a show and then Monday morning comes about and you go ah fuck <laughs> this again but it's fine because you get to Monday evening and of course you've got a nice gentle set at Duck Duck Goose and then you've got Tuesday morning you've got more work again and then you, you get to Tuesday evening and you go, oh well I've got a rehearsal and then... <sighs> so there are problems there and I've had to uh, schedule in nights off. I should be scheduling in more of them. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm you know, not resting enough, I'm not taking care of myself the way I should be. But if I have a night in, I I get quite introspective, and you know, there's a lot there's a lot to think about, and I don't want to. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I really don't want to think about it. Um, it's it makes me very unhappy. Um, actually, no, very unhappy is the good one. Um, then I'm feeling something. Yeah. For the audience at home, I've been staring into space for slightly too long now. Um, yeah, uh, basically, if I had any advice to young up-and-coming improvisers today, it would be don't do too much. I used to be in, I think it was seven teams at once, and over the course of about a, maybe a year, maybe six months, I dropped most of them, which was a really difficult thing to do because I... I loved every one of those groups. Um, so, <laughs> uh, Stuart, you warned me at the beginning not to try listing people in groups because you'll miss one off. Um, I'm now going to try listing groups and I might miss one off. Be but... brave. Be bold. That's what improv's all about. <laughs> yeah. So, obviously, there was uh, Big Now. There was uh, Somewhat Theatre. There was my solo project. 
which I don't do so much these days because I, I did a whole year of doing open mics with that. And when you've had six consecutive open mic nights, oh, <laughs> it's 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 wearying in a way that improv <laughs> nights aren't because um, it's not the community that I've spent time with. Like the community in improv is a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's not the only reason I do it, but it's a, a great reason to do it. Um, I've met so many good friends through it, like Big Now, for instance, and somewhat theatre. <laughs> like, you know, the people I play with. Um, <laughs> it's it's no accident that I play with these people. Um, I think they're brilliant improvisers, but also I think they're brilliant people. And so, yeah, well, all that kind of thing. Uh, so those are the three I've mentioned so far. Uh, Misunderstood Commander, uh, which I mentioned earlier. Um, An Excess of Bees, uh, which was me and Tom Leving. That just went by the wayside because he's even more busy than I am. <laughs> uh, Impetus, which is uh, was rather. Uh, unfortunately, they're not going anymore. Um, uh, Monkey Toast Harold team that uh, David Shaw put together, and it was. A really interesting selection of people that I couldn't see the organising principle behind it, <laughs> but what came out was lovely. Uh, we were coached by Ben Fogg, who is a wonderful chap, and um, he was really happy to like push us in uh, new directions to try harder things, and that that was wonderful. I, I loved working with those guys. I mean, all of these groups, all of these groups. Um, who else? Who else? The Age of Adventure. The Age of Adventure, or before that, the Adventurers. We yeah. changed lineup. Um, that was that was a lot of fun. I uh, love those guys as well. Uh, but the real problem there was, it was very, very colonial, <laughs> and it, we'd never meant it to be. And. Um, <sighs> It's really awkward because we just meant it to be a, a playful knockabout adventure <laughs> in the style of like King Solomon's Mines yeah. or you know other Empire era things, and then it became that we were making a comment about Empire, which we don't have the nuance or understanding to do, <laughs> and so it ended up that we were just playing something which was very white <laughs> and unpleasantly so, and. Um, uh, if you remember, Ty Campbell had a piece in the stage about um, how the improv scene isn't that welcoming if you're not white. And that gave us you know, food for thought because I realised that was exactly the problem with what we were doing. That, um, heaven forfend, we were not doing anything actively racist, but no. we were we were doing nothing at all to improve the scene for like, to make it more welcoming mm. for anyone who didn't look like us um, and we were quite probably putting people off by uh, people would come along to a night and go oh here's three white people doing very white material and <sighs> it's not what we'd meant to do at all mm. and it's just we'd been unthinking and when we realised that, we couldn't justify doing it anymore. Um, and that's an awkward conversation to have with each other, but it's even more awkward to have with yourself. And we 
the, the last thing we wanted to do was be part of the problem. And yeah, so so we dropped that. Um, I I feel bad about having done that um, in the first place. It's we could have done <laughs> something similar without touching on any of those themes at all, but we didn't, and that was that was careless, um, to put it mildly. So I'm I'm glad we're not doing that anymore. Um, I still want to work with those guys, but we'll find other projects when, if we have time at any point. <laughs> when, when would we have time? Uh, and then, uh, uh, Duck Duck Tales. Duck Duck Tales. Great fun. Um, right, the Duck Duck Goose guys are just so, so wonderfully playful, and oh, yeah, I just. I couldn't commit to the rehearsals and it wasn't fair on them to do the shows without rehearsing. No. And that I think that was the main one that made me realize I'd taken on too much because for a lot of the others I was organizing rehearsals because um I default to adminning and for that other people were organising rehearsals, and I was just going, oh, I can't make these. And then I realised, why is it so hard with this one and <laughs> not the others? It's because I'm letting the others down by not organising things. And so I just went, oh, I have to step back. And it wasn't all at once. It was just a gradual process of going, this this isn't working. And uh, a matter of prioritising what, what I can give time to. Yeah. Um, and I'd advise that for everyone. Um, yeah, don't don't take on too much. Now, because I'm only in a couple of teams, there's the ones I mentioned and Improbotics Limited. Cool. Um, but you've had people on recently to talk about that. But I just I just want to point out that as part of that, I managed to fail a Turing test. <laughs> I don't think I get enough credit for that. <laughs> so. Yeah, um, but that means that I have the time to take on short-term hmm. projects, which is great because the nursery originals, and so I've I've been in a few of those, and they continue to be great front. Cool. Front? Yeah, front, that's front. a word. So, big final, big final question. As you've listened to every episode of this podcast, you know mm. what I'm going to ask. Mm. Yes. What is Who Arthur's? killed JR? Well, uh, wasn't that Bobby? Well, I mean, it was all a dream, which is a real cop-out. Uh, <laughs> yes. And if ever I see someone do that in an improv scene, I would be delighted, because no one does it. <laughs> so it's such a cop-out that, you know, you, there are some things you see in improv and you go, oh, that's, that's a bit of a cop-out. But then you have something like that, which is a real cop-out in a narrative way. And because improv is so yes oriented you can just go in that direction no matter what people don't cop it out like that they never have to bring it down to earth yes you'll end up in crazy town but no one ever goes and that crazy town was all a dream <laughs> and sometimes you'll have people will get fixated on some wording that someone else has said and then the whole set becomes about that and you go Everyone's laughing, but it doesn't actually seem fun. <laughs> so this is the thing that I was saying earlier about the audience experience. Just laughing, I don't think, is enough. And so there'll be sets where you get to the end of it and you go, I was laughing constantly, but I didn't enjoy the set. And then there'll be other ones where you go, I think I laughed twice, 
but that was one of the best things I've ever seen. <laughs> um, and I'm not saying that stuff that I've done is in the latter category, but I'd love to be leaning that way. Cool. What's your signature move? Mm. Here's the problem. It's <laughs> So I'm not the person to ask. It would be people who've played with me a lot. But I think it it's probably puns, and I hate that. Because <laughs> that's not improv. That's just wordplay. And I never mean to do it, but it's always too hard to resist. <laughs> and it... You know, that's that's a thing that I'm known for, and for some people, it's the thing I'm known for, and I don't, I don't want to be doing it, um, and I I need better discipline around that. Like there are other opportunities to make jokes that I'll also go for and shouldn't. Um, one of the first things you learn, certainly in long form, is don't make jokes, and I still do it, and I just go, yeah, but too good to resist <laughs> but there are people who've been doing this like three or four times longer than I have who do the same thing and I just watch and go I mean I'm sad but at least it's just as hard for you as it is for me <laughs> but I want to stop <laughs> I, I don't want to be doing that because it doesn't help the show it doesn't help the scene and it never gets the laugh you're thinking of. <laughs> and I know that going in but but every time I believe for some reason this particular zinger is going to knock their absolute socks off. And then you hear the audience, and if anything, they're putting on more socks. <laughs> and no one wants that. Just a crowd just wearing five pairs of socks each. Uh, so it's that. Thank you for being on the Improv London podcast. Thank you for having me. I made this. That's improv! <laughs>